UVA and Virginia Tech snapped two-game losing streaks and looked to take a little momentum into the ACC tournament in Greensboro. The race for the regular season title is a tight one, and we remember the life and career of Terry Holland, this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome to episode 105 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech UVA and ACC Sports Podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me as always, my co-host, the 14-time Sports Writer of the Year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, good to talk to you, my friend. Happy March. Happy March, our, one of our favorite months, anyway, of the year. Where, where does it fall in, in your rankings on the calendar? Pretty much number one. Yeah, it's hard to beat. St. Patrick's Day is great, but I think we're both talking about the NCAA tournament. And um, and the ACC tournament. Yeah, it really, it, conference tournaments in general, obviously, yes. we, we're going to be focused on the ACC, but it's just such a fun time of year and, uh, you know, March Madness and everything that that brings with it. And uh, it's one of the reasons, David, you know, when they, they always talk about, you know, expanding the NCAA tournament and I don't know, I, I fall strongly in the camp of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, I love the, the passion of the conference tournaments. I, I don't want to see uh, any of that go away. Uh, you know, the, the team sort of fighting for their lives. And uh, if anything, I, I would just shift some of the selection criteria to get more mid-majors in. And, and, you know, I think it's been put out there by a number of people. But to me, that that first four weekend, the first four games they have, I mean, that ought to all be power five high major programs if you didn't get it done and you're the classic bubble team then you get one more chance uh you know like a a wrestle back or a, a last qualifier for for track and field runners i think that would bring a lot of excitement i i don't want to see uh any spots though going away from from kind of the so-called little guys mike the, the only caveat there would be if you wanted to make the first four exclusively power five you would have to adjust the formula for the distribution of NCAA tournament revenue because the HBCU conferences that traditionally, whose conference champions traditionally end up in the first four, they love going there because they can win a game in the tournament. That's another unit for their conference. That's more money that they desperately need. So, you know, I think we'd have to be careful there. It would have to have some corresponding changes on the revenue side. Yeah, that that makes sense. But I think that that could certainly be adjusted, Um, even if it's something as simple as waiting a a first round game uh, more in terms of what it's worth, the the value and the payout, um, kind of make getting to the NCAA tournament the number one money maker, And and then certainly you have the opportunity to to gain more as you advance. But It'd be interesting, but but overall, you know, my thing is, I like it the way it is, and mm-hmm. and I've, I'm afraid if you start putting, you know, you always hear coaches talk about, well, you know, so many guys they they're they're on the hot seat or they lose their job because they didn't make the NCAA tournament. Well, if you go and expand the thing, you're not fooling anybody, right? If if you're the last team in, that's not saving coaches' jobs. If it's not hard, it's it's like a bowl game. Right, we see football coaches get fired all the time when they're six and six and bowl eligible. Correct. Bowl eligible isn't saving anybody. Right. So I think if you water down the NCAA tournament, um, coaches who make that argument are going to realize it doesn't have the same value. 
Now, I don't, I don't believe it would. And let's remember, Mike, this is a point I always try to make to folks who are pro-expansion. The NCAA tournament includes everyone in the country. It's right. just the first couple rounds are in your conference tournament. Those are the single, those are the single, that's when the single elimination begins, unless you have had such a exceptional regular season that you're assured of an at-large bid. Yeah, and and that is part of the magic of, of March, is we get to the month and now all of a sudden, every game you're playing is uh, potentially an opportunity to advance or to be part of, of something special. And uh, I get it, man. I, I get the idea that we want as many people as possible to be part of the tournament because it's a, it's a great event. But um Let's not let's not cheapen what it what it means and uh, you know what it means to get there because you know there there it should be special to get there it it does take work it does take effort and it should be rewarded now somebody who is quite good at getting his teams to the NCAA tournament yeah. advancing them in the NCAA tournament uh, was former Virginia coach Terry Holland Terry Holland passed this week David you chronicled his end-of-life battles so beautifully uh, not that long ago Then you wrote about his passing. When you think about Terry Holland, what are the things that people should remember? Mike, first and foremost, just what a ambassador, a gentleman, uh, an intellect he was for the University of Virginia, for intercollegiate athletics. Uh, I talked to so many former players and coaches who came under Terry's guidance and they they to to a man and woman just talked about how kind and gracious he was and those of us who covered him we felt that too um, did we have disagreements with coach of course we did but he was so patient about it he never held a grudge he he loved the exchange of ideas didn't resent disagreements and he was, you know, Dan Bonner told me the other day, and I didn't realize this, you know, Dan came from a large Catholic family up in Pennsylvania, very tight knit. And he got to UVA and he said he was lost, not academically, but socially. He just didn't fit in. And he just, he, it wasn't working for him. But he persevered through three years. And then in his Final season, senior year, UVA hires Terry Holland, whom had tried to recruit Dan Bonner to Davidson when he was the head coach there. And Bonner said his whole life changed because of the confidence and the love that Coach Holland and his wife, Ann, and the, da- and the girls, his two daughters, showed the players. And t- to me, it was just so moving to hear Dan talk about it. And last night, you know, you, you were up in the press perch. I don't know if you've watched the DVR. I have. But Bonner was doing the game. And they did a little outro about Terry Holland. And Dan just said, love you, coach. And I know scores of people felt the same, feel the same. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable um, because of his resume and what he did in basketball how long sometimes it takes people to even get to the basketball stuff because yeah. of the impact. He, I mean, Jim Laranega, um, who did, in answer to your question, kind of point out, you know, with his early retirement, he would have been one of the all-time greats statistically in terms of yes. wins and losses. But but what did Jim Laranega focus on? He said 
the way Terry ran the program, the idea of being a family, of the players being part of your family, and how Jim said he's tried to embrace that and, and bring that in everywhere he's been, uh, now at Miami and at Mason and Bowling Green. And uh, I remember the longest interview I had with Terry Holland was, it was back in 2016 when Virginia was a win away uh, from trying to get to a Final Four. It's obviously the game in Chicago that they they lost to Syracuse. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was asking him about, you know, scouting and, and the quick turnaround and being ready going from the Sweet 16 to the Elite Eight. And, and all Terry was focused on was the crushing, the crucible of expectations at that point, um, the pressure that you feel. Uh, he, he told me at that point, I, I, I'm going to be a little off on the quote, but essentially he said, you know, we wanted it more, then the rest of the country wanted it and the rest of the fan base did it. The pressure was from us. Uh, and he was, he was kind of a, ahead of his time. And, you know, he brought in Bob Rotella, the, the sports psychologist in 1984 to help them deal with what people expected from UVA basketball. And um, everybody you talk to, it's such a focus on the, the student athlete, on the individual, on the relationships. And I think that's why uh, he was so important to people and why people, uh, understandably, uh, were, were grieving his loss. Mike, think about this. Before Terry Holland arrived at the University of Virginia in 1974, the Cavaliers had never, never been to the NCAA tournament. Terry took them there nine times, made two Final Fours and two other Elite Eights. He did it with Ralph Sampson. He did it without Ralph Sampson. And there are those who will tell you, and I would agree with them, that Terry was the start of what UVA athletics is today. Before he arrived, Virginia's only team national championship ever had been in men's lacrosse. But Terry showed what was possible, and he showed that elite academics and elite athletics need not be mutually exclusive, which so many at UVA had believed for such a long time. And then in tandem with George Welsh in football, he helped turn that athletic department into the power that it is today, when multiple national championships in a single academic year have become routine in, in myriad sports, men's lacrosse, women's swimming, baseball, rowing, you know, you go down the list, men's basketball. <clears throat> I, I would contend that had Terry Holland not showed what was possible at UVA, Tony Bennett would not be in Charlottesville right now. The job would not have been that attractive. I'm glad you said that because it's been always my thought that Terry Holland is the most important figure in Virginia athletics history. I mean, Ralph Sampson's certainly the biggest name, but Terry Holland, because of his coaching and what he was able to do, and then his role as an administrator and what you just talked about, about mm -hmm. doing what, what they like to do at Stanford or what they like to do at, at Texas, where, where maybe it's not the same academically, but the broad-based, all of these teams, and then success, uh, and then to marry it at Virginia with, with the academic standards. You know, in sports, we love to get into the debate of the Mount Rushmore. Who, who are the four guys yeah. you're going to throw up? To me, Terry Holland's more like, you know, the Washington Monument. <laughs> um, he, he stands alone for, for what he did in terms of the vision of what UVA has become. Um, 
And then again, like I, I keep going back to, don't overlook his resume as a coach because uh, he was absolutely outstanding. And you brought up the, the really good point that um, had he not transitioned uh, at a fairly young age into administration, what might his career record look like? What might uh, he have built if he had just stayed with basketball? Very true. And and some health issues contributed to his decision to leave coaching. He was just shy of his 48th birthday. Um, He had some disagreements with the then athletic director, Jim Copeland, about support for for men's basketball. Jim Copeland was a former UVA football player. And the ironic thing is, when Terry came back and succeeded Jim, his athletic director, his first big facilities project was the expansion of the football stadium. (laughs) (laughs) and i i used to tease terry about that and he would laugh but as an administrator he he realized uh as had his predecessors that football was going to be driving the, the revenue train and so scott stadium became the first priority and then he, in, in concert with Craig Littlepage, made John Paul Jones Arena a reality. And we could go through through what Terry did at UVA and for uh, UVA, probably for an entire episode, and it would be very deserving. But I did want to talk a little, David, because you chronicled it uh, just so well, what he's dealt with here yeah. uh, later in life, and, and his, his wife and family certainly by his side, uh, battling Alzheimer's and, and uh, everything that that kind of took away from him at the end, but, but his approach and, and the family's approach. Tell us a little bit about, because like I said, you, you had the chance to, to speak with a lot of people around Terry. Uh, take us through kind of the, the final years here. Mike and his wife of 56 years. I mean, they, they met as, as teenagers in Clinton, North Carolina. It's a classic small town romance and she was so gracious to spend time answering my questions about a, ver- a very difficult subject and emotional. And uh, But she said, you know, in 2018 or so, she started to notice some things. And then in 2019, shortly after they had returned to Charlottesville and moved into a seniors community there that... Terry and Anne received the, you know, the, the diagnosis, the confirmation that he indeed had Alzheimer's. And in a remarkable confluence, Bobby Stokes, a captain for Terry Holland in 1979, and now a physician, became the family doctor there in Charlottesville uh, for Terry's final years. And that was a comfort not only to Bobby, but to the Hollands. And Terry didn't hide from this. <clears throat> In fact, he and Ann did a seminar there at the seniors community about coping with it. And uh, I just, it, and, and that was in keeping, it, that was keeping in character for Terry. He wanted to help people in any way he could. Uh, and he did up until the very end. Yeah, he, he'll be remembered as such a first-class gentleman, and that is the way uh, he handled that whole situation as he handled uh, everything throughout his life and career, and, and certainly the entire UVA community uh, will miss him, especially 
the basketball community, which recognized him uh, pregame before the Tuesday night game against Clemson, a moment of silence there. And and then on to a David, very important basketball game for this year's Cavaliers. And um, yeah, they're going to be in the NCAA tournament. They don't have to worry about uh, any of that bubble stuff we were talking about, Uh, but they needed to start playing well. And, and, and I thought they took a step uh, Tuesday night against Clemson to doing just that. Their defense finished off kind of what it started against Carolina. I thought it was interesting uh, after the loss at Carolina, Tony Bennett was kind of heaping praise on his guys, right? And how mm-hmm. proud he was and and how it filled him with joy to see them play defense the way they did in the second half with a tenacity. And uh, David, I thought they did a real nice job of carrying that into the Clemson game and, and getting an important win. I thought Kihei Clark was the ringleader too, Mike. Uh, didn't make a shot last night from the field, 0 for 7. But I watched the game on DVR this morning. I was at VCU last night uh, seeing the Rams clinch the the A-10 regular season. But Clark's on-the-ball defense uh, on Chase Hunter, I just thought, took Clemson out of its offense from the start. And it just all fell into place from there for, for the Cavaliers. Yeah, still not the crispest offensive outing, uh, you know, that is is still an issue. There were still some missed layups, though fewer. Uh, There were still some missed free throws, although most of them came from one place. Ben Vanderplas is really struggling at the line. Uh, But this is a program that that always is built on defense. And this year, as things have gotten sideways a little, every player to a man said, we just have to get right defensively and everything else will kind of flow from there. And, And I thought that really happened. I thought Reese Beekman was outstanding. Uh, defensively again, and, you know, you mentioned Clark and, you know, it's interesting, these guys not having the biggest offensive games, but the impact on the defensive end, it, offensively, a, a little bit more uh, blocker mover and, and some offense that, that Tony Bennett had kind of gotten away from. Um, I don't know if that was just Clemson based, you know, the matchup or just a way to get this offense going, but I thought at times they did look more comfortable and effective offensively. I thought there was a better flow, Mike. Yeah. And, you know, not to get too deep into the weeds, but it's a it's a pretty simple concept. Sometimes blocker movers is also referred to as sides, where you, you basically have a ball, you know, point guard out front and then two guys on each side of the lane. And then folks just start curling off screens. And it can be very difficult to defend when it's when it's right. And you need guys who have a really keen eye for bounce passes and and, and such to, to, to hit those guys in stride coming off those screens, curling. And uh, I thought they did that last night. You know, Clark and, and Beekman combined for 14 assists in just two turnovers. There was a really good anecdote that Isaac McNeely told after the game. Uh, he said there was a possession where UVA had the ball and, and Kihei Clark told them, hey, next one, cur- curl around uh, on the backside and, and it's going to be there for you. I'll get you the ball. It's going to be there. Uh, and McNeely kind of gave the sense of like, I don't really see it, but you're Kihei Clark. You've played a lot of basketball <laughs> and they come down the floor and he does what he's told and he curls around that screen and Kihei gets in the ball and, and he, he gets the basket and the and one. And uh, he said it was kind of you know the brilliance of Kihei Clark to see exactly how things are going to unfold and, uh, you know, so, so important. And, and that is part of what Kihei Clark brings uh, to the floor. Now, 
They've got one more game at home. Kihei Clark's second senior day uh, <laughs> against Louisville. Second and final senior day, Mike. I, I assume. I never like to yeah. say anything too uh, uh-huh. definitively these days. But, yes, th- this certainly appears to be the final home game for Kihei Clark. Uh, it, David, it's against a Louisville team that obviously has struggled. has played better late in the year, but um, just got waxed last night by Virginia Tech. Uh, but it's important for Virginia, I would think, to continue to build and play well because the month of February has not been as good as the month of February normally is to the Cavaliers. Agreed. And you do, you want to send out your seniors on a happy note, unlike last season. I mean, all Virginia fans remember how how that went down and how disappointing that was. And Clark and then the the shorter-lived seniors, such as Jane Gardner, um, you, you want them to have fond memories of that last trip on, at JPJ. Yeah, and it, it certainly, I mean, Kihei Clark's career uh, transcends any one game, but it is, it, it is special. And you do remember, right? We remember, you know, Frank Beamer's final home game. We remember. Uh, but he, those, but by the way, that he lost. Right. And, and that's yeah. what I mean. It, 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 you, do, you don't want that. And, and it doesn't change anybody's legacy or anything like that but um yeah you do you want to send your your seniors out the right way you want to go into the tournament with some momentum uh now in terms of the seating it looks like virginia's pretty locked into the three they can still uh, have some things happen their way to, to move up to two i believe but yeah. uh it looks like they're going to be the three seed and playing unfortunately for us in the newspaper business the late 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 games, the uh, like when David Night Letterman party. used to be on after uh, <laughs> was it after Leno or, or Carson the the late late show. Uh, but in terms of where Virginia's at, do we feel pretty good about this team going into Greensboro? I do, I mean, and I know that's probably counter to, to to a lot of fans, but I I believe that defensively they're they're going to lock in at the turn. Does that mean they're going to win the conference tournament? Not necessarily. Uh, gosh, if, if somebody asked me today who's going to win the ACC tournament, you know, you just look at the hot team. I'd tell you Duke is. But Duke could very well lose Saturday in Chapel Hill. Um, I mean, that's how that's how this conference is, is wired this season. But I, I think Virginia w- will distinguish itself in Greensboro. Let's put it that way. How that translates, I don't know. And Mike, I'm so glad that you mentioned – Kind of, you know, sports doesn't always have <clears throat> happy endings. You mentioned Frank Beamer's final home game and Kia Clark's senior day last year. Terry Holland's final game at University Hall. You know who he lost to? His dear friend, Dave Odom in Wake Forest. There, the, it, it was unbelievable. Odom hated it. I, I was just going to say, Dave would probably have given that one back <laughs> yeah. if he had the opportunity to do so. Yes, because you know David worked for Terry, and and you know they were lifelong friends, uh, and uh, to the point where they competed against each other in high school basketball. That's how far <laughs> back they went. And again, it speaks to you know what we, what we talked about in the opening of just how Terry Holland w- was viewed, right? And, and I think we've seen and, and you know Mike Bray is not retiring; he's made that very clear. He's he's stepping away from Notre Dame and uh, may very well be back in, in coaching sooner rather than later. But you kind of get that that same feel of 
how much people like and respect Mike Bray coming mm-hmm. down the stretch and um, talk about not ending things on, on, on a positive note. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that um, there are those coaches that are able to be successful, are able to be competitive, are able to elevate their programs. But at the end of the day, everybody still likes them, right? And, and they, they are the good guys in the sport. And um, it, it's always nice to, to, to root for those guys. I think, I think they got one of those guys down in Blacksburg in Mike Young. Uh, I, you know, you hear other people talk about him. You hear his players talk about him. Uh, you hear his players talk about how he guided them last year through a tough start. And, and then they go on that amazing run in Brooklyn. Well, they had another tough start. And this one they didn't get out of, at least in the regular season. I don't know if they're going to make a magical run in, in Greensboro. It, it seems like a, a tall order, uh, but they look pretty good for a night, at least against Louisville, uh, you know, beating a, a pretty bad Cardinals team soundly. David, what did we see from Virginia Tech? And did we see anything that makes us think, OK, maybe they're they're getting a little of that March Madness magic here? No. <laughs> In, in in short, way to shut uh, that down. <laughs> well, no, and I, I'm I'm jaded because as as you put it, it it's Louisville, yeah. and and Kenny Payne said after the game he he was amazed at how his team did not show up for its seniors on senior night. And when the other team, number one, doesn't show up and number two has a talent deficiency, it's hard to get excited when you, Virginia Tech, shot 37.5% on the night and, oh, yeah, you won comfortably by 17. Now, did it stop a two-game losing streak? Yes. Did Grant Basile score 18 and make three threes? Absolutely. You know, Justin Mutz, four assists. 12 rebounds, 13 points, you know, another really nice stat line for him. But in terms of seeing anything that leads you to believe that magic is about to recur in Greensboro, I would tell you no. And if only for this reason, last year in Brooklyn, Virginia Tech had to win four in four days. Mm -hmm. Next week, they would have to win five in five days. Not happening. No, and the other thing is, yes, they they won by a comfortable margin, but David, uh, that game was a six point game with or a three point game with nine minutes to play. Yeah. Uh, they pulled away late, and, and I think that's where Kenny saw some of that uh, just lack of of drive from his guys that, that surprised him. But uh, the the final score looked a lot better than <laughs> maybe it was. Uh, but you, but you never know. There are some good pieces there at, at Virginia Tech. Um, certainly, uh, kind of the, the flip of what we just said about the intensity and the effort level at Louisville. They're still playing hard. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think they're a team, I would say it this way, go, going into Greensboro, I think they're a team you don't want to play. I think they're better than they've looked this year. Are they good enough to, to win five in a row? No, no, they're probably not. And that's such a tall, tall ask anyway. Right. But on one day in Greensboro, do you want to face that team? No. No, because they can because on on that day they can go hair on fire on you and make about mm-hmm. a dozen and a half threes and you're going home. Right. I mean, and, and they can lock in. We've seen them play some good defense uh, at, at stretches. We've seen them share the ball magnificently against North Carolina, against Duke, uh, against Virginia. They've they've <laughs> they've played some of their best basketball against their quote unquote tougher opponents. So we'll. 
we'll see what what they're able to do. But you know, to me, they're they're a team that you don't really want to want to match up with. Boston College, all of a sudden, David. <laughs> uh, and again, salty, the aren't they? Right, and, and a lot of it has been at home, certainly. But would you want to play Boston College right now in the, in the ACC tournament? Especially when Quentin Post is knocking down threes. Yeah. You know, that, that dude, he's seven foot and he's a load in the post and he's got nice footwork. I mean, he's skilled and wide. He's not this scrawny seven footer. I mean, he is a sturdy man and he can also shoot it with range. Now, I, I thought Earl Grant last season did a nice job with that squad. And I'm even more impressed with the job he's done this season. What are they? They're nine and ten, right? Going into the nine and ten in the tonight. conference. Yep, and and they have an intriguing. I, I know people. I know this isn't the marquee game of the weekend, uh, but they have a really intriguing matchup with Georgia Tech, who has won back to back games. I think four of their last five. And you know, Josh Pastner keeps telling us on those Monday calls, "Hey, normally my teams kind of find themselves and, and click in January, and this team." Did it a month late and, and, you know, too late to, to really salvage uh, the, the season. But Georgia Tech is playing some okay basketball. That Boston College-Georgia Tech uh, matchup is a it, under the radar, as people like to say. It's a sneaky good game. Well, Georgia Tech faced a team last night that checked out as well. Syracuse. Yeah. What has happened there? And what does it mean for Jim Beheim going forward? Yeah, apparently. Yeah. And that, now I didn't watch the game. I didn't see any of it. But based on text I received and such, number one, Bayheim scrapped the zone and went man to man. The defense was so bad. They still gave up ninety plus points. And apparently the the good denizens of the dome let him know how unhappy they were. Yeah, and I don't know that there were super high expectations for Syracuse this year, but they were higher than 16 and 14, 9 and 10 in the conference. Um, they've lost four in a row. The defense has, has been bad all year. Uh, there's just a, a lot of things that, that, that seem off and amiss at Syracuse right now. On the flip of that, there are a lot of things that are going right right now for the quote-unquote Blue Bloods. Duke's won five in a row. North Carolina's won three in a row. Obviously, one of those streaks is going to end uh, when they meet Saturday. But, David, I've said this a few times here on the podcast. Those are, to me, the the teams that I I would put my money on when you're looking at at the ACC tournament. Being in Greensboro, it's a virtual home game. They're both finding themselves here down the stretch. Uh, How good could Duke Carolina be this weekend, and, and how dangerous will those teams be in the tournament? Very and very. Yeah. It will be a very good game, and they are absolutely dangerous at, at the ACC tournament. And, Mike, I believe I have this right. When Duke has its full complement of scholarship players, it has lost one time this season. And we saw it at JPJ. And, of course, there are some Duke fans who would tell you that they should be undefeated. Yeah, there's an asterisk in their mind that goes by that one. Yes, we need not relitigate that. But, no, the, the Devils are playing well, and one of the primary reasons is that their most experienced player, not the t- touted freshman, Jeremy Roach, in the backcourt, much as he did last March, in helping Duke reach the Final Four, he has found his stride. 
And he had another large game last night against North Carolina State. And the Devils completed an undefeated season at Cameron under first-year coach John Shire. And as you mentioned, five-game winning streak that includes, by the way, a Saturday beatdown of Virginia Tech that was never really close. And the Devils are playing well on both ends. Yeah, and you know, it's Jeremy Roach to me is one of the most underappreciated players in college basketball. And I always think of, of this little vignette, if you will, but it, it was Mike Krzyzewski's last game at, at JPJ and Roach had, had played a great game and, and just um, had really made some veteran plays that, that, that kind of helped keep the Blue Devils uh, in things and, and, and doing what they wanted to do. And uh, they came up to do the post-game press conference and there was only one chair. Uh, you know, they had a chair for, for Mike Krzyzewski. I don't know if they knew that uh, he had a player with him and Jeremy Roach was going to be that player. And Mike went and climbed down off the, I don't know if you remember this, he climbed down off the dais and he, and he picked up a chair and he brought it up for, for Jeremy Roach. And uh, he joked about the fact that, you know, after everything Jeremy had done for him that night, it was kind of the least he could do. And uh, he said it fit with his, his Polish blue collar background too uh, that day, which was a, a great, great remark. Uh, but uh, Jeremy Roach uh, uh, and that talent that's around him, um, you know, Duke it would be an obvious pick uh, for, for the favorite in Greensboro. But the ACC title game, the de facto ACC yes. title game, may very well be in, in South Florida, right? Where Pittsburgh and Miami are going to play. Pittsburgh currently in first place at 14-4. and four. They've got a game tonight uh, with Notre Dame. And Miami at 14-5 and five is just kind of laying in there and wait. Uh, David, Pittsburgh and Miami for the ACC regular season title, most likely. Not not what we would have expected, not a game we probably had circled going into the year. Amazing how the schedule makers knew, though, right? <laughs> right. How did ESPN know that that's how it was going to fall? They, they said, give us Duke Carolina and give us Pitt Miami. That's what we need. Yes. And just, it must have been, been a different guy in a different room who put together Virginia and Louisville, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. on, a, on a completely tangential thought, the fact that Virginia and Louisville yeah. – close the regular season against one another every year baffles me no end. Why can't that be Virginia, Virginia Tech? Yeah, we talk about that all the time. It's There's such good energy, plus you're going to have the students and all of those things, which sometimes you miss depending when the game falls. Um, when the teams are good, it's up there nationally for, for such an intriguing. And if one or two of them are not good, there's still juice because it's the rivalry. What the I, you know, heck? Right. I don't understand why every – team doesn't have some kind of rivalry game uh, to end the season. And I know not everybody has a natural, uh, but then we would have Florida state Miami on Saturday and not Pitt Miami, which would not be as intriguing. No, most definitely not (laughs) the way things have gone for coach Hamilton and his squad on the injury front this season. But no, to your point, Pitt Miami, and it was, it's the second time they've met this season. The first up at Pitt was an outstanding game that Pitt took the lead, Mike, I believe, with 25 seconds to go on a Blake Henson layup. And then uh, Greg Elliott hit a couple free throws down the stretch to keep him at bay, and Pitt ended up winning. Uh, so, no, it could it could be a really, really exceptional rematch 
down in uh, Coral Gables. It could also decide that the ACC Coach of the Year, I think that um, Brad Brownell's done a, a great job. Kevin Cates, Keats has done a great job. Uh, but Jim Laranega and, and Jeff Capel, to me, I think it's Capel either way. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I mean, that could also decide that there have been some really outstanding coaching jobs and some surprising teams this year, and, and certainly Pittsburgh's at the top of that list. Picked 14th, right? Yeah. In, uh, in preseason. Once, once again, the media showing how smart we are. We're, we're clowns. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, who, who knew? You know, so many fresh faces and transfers, and again, portal power. You know, you, you look up and down Pitt's lineup. They're all guys who started their career at another school, and some of them are on their third. <laughs> but it has it has worked for Jeff Capel and his staff, and Jamarius Burton is going to be first team all ACC. And if Pitt wins on Saturday. He may end up winning player of the year. I, the player of the year race to me yeah. is a complete, complete coin flip among many players. I was just say, has it been, I can't remember the time I've been doing it, it being this wide open. I, I think the, the biggest debate I remember was, you know, Eric Green at Virginia Tech, um, who was kind of far and away the most outstanding player, but on a, a dreadful team. Right. Um, and I think that he was, led the nation in scoring. Yeah, and and he and he was rebounding for them. He was assisting for them. Now they didn't have anybody else doing anything, which was part of the reason. Um, but I think that was Shane Larkin at, at Miami. And, yes. Um, so there was there was some debate, and certainly, but in terms of the depth of the field, I think it's it's one of four guys. I think it's either Isaiah Wong, Jamarius Burton, Tyree Appleby, or Armando Baycott. How do you weigh winning? Because all of those. Teams are winning teams, but obviously Carolina's been, been disappointing. Um, how, how do you weigh winning in your equation when you're trying to pick a player of the year? When it's this close, I think I'm going to weigh it a lot. Yeah, which is reasonable, right? I mean, how good are you if you haven't elevated your team? Now, mm-hmm. you mentioned Quentin Post earlier. Not that I think he should be the player of the year, but when you talk about elevating a team, sometimes you elevate a team from bad to average or from average mm-hmm. to good. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's fair. And, and I think, you know, Wake Forest has, has fallen off. Um, they really have. That hurts Appleby, uh, who is leading the ACC in scoring at 18.7 points per game. And and, and assists. And assists at 6.2. Uh, so he's certainly been, been outstanding. Uh, you know, Wong, it, it, on that offense and, and some of the things he's been able to do too with steals and transition, uh, it it is a it's a fascinating race and uh, you know Baycott to me averaging a double double when you talk about impact on a game um, mm-hmm. it's hard to beat that but again as we just referenced that team hasn't achieved at the level of, of Miami or, or Pittsburgh yeah for for what's worth Mike I think Baycott has been for lack of better description that team's glue. I mean, there are moments this year where you thought the Tar Heels were going to absolutely splinter. And I think somehow they haven't quite. They're, they've come close. Yes. <laughs> they've frayed at the edges considerably. But I think the, the one player who kept it from becoming a total wreck was Baycott. I think you're right. I'm, I'm supposed to talk to Armando this afternoon, actually. And, uh, that's kind of the number one topic. It, you know, it's two years in a row that, that Hubert Davis has 
talked about uh, effort, having to coach effort, talked about chemistry and all those things. And and the one guy who it's never an issue is Armando Baycott. And, um, I don't know if his teammates have followed his lead or if it's just that he's done enough to make up for it. Yeah. Um, but I think that also is worth factoring in when you're thinking about uh, the player of the year and, and, and you know, leadership. And, um, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's going to be a, a really interesting race, a really interesting ballot. And um, we'll be the same for, for defensive player of the year. I, I think, uh, you know, those of us who, who watch Virginia regularly uh, certainly have Reese Beekman pretty high, if not at the top of that list. Uh, how, how does he viewed around the conference? It'll be interesting to see. And, um, you know, there was a stretch there where it felt like because Virginia was the best defense, whoever their best defensive player was, was going to get the nod. Um, it hasn't gone that way always. And uh, is Reese Beekman your guy in, in that category? Maybe. Leaky Black. He's amazing, Mike. And he was amazing against UVA. You know, he had four block shots. And he's, he's exceptional on the ball as well. <clears throat> and it, it's, in my, on my ballot, it will be either Black or Beekman. I want to take a look at him one more time Saturday. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And, and I think that was a lot of the debate uh, for me a year ago, too. Uh, two great on-ball defenders, two lanky, lengthy guys who can bother shots, block shots. Um, again, for me, it comes back to just how good Virginia has been defensively. And then they haven't been uh, where they've been in the past. But um, to me, they're still the, the defensive standard uh, in the ACC. And um, then I just look to, okay, who's who's the leader of that? And, you know, Virginia only gives up 60.5 points a game. Now, part of it is their pace, right? It, it would be hard for Carolina to give up 60 points a game uh, playing the tempo that they play. Uh, but Virginia's given up 10.5 points fewer than the Tar Heels. Uh, that's where Beekman kind of jumps ahead for me, at least as I go into thinking about this. Very fair. And th- that may well be uh, where I fall. Uh, but I'm I'm fascinated to see Duke Carolina on Saturday because because Tar Heels need to win now. I was, the last thing I wanted to hit with you yes. is where are we? <laughs> I know what the coaches think. Uh, where are we in perception of the ACC? Because after Clemson's loss to Virginia, which some people thought was a must win for Clemson, I asked Brad Brownell about how his program is viewed, how the ACC is viewed, what the outlook for the NCAA tournament is. Here's what Brad had to say. I certainly think we're tournament worthy in terms of how we play and the nature of our team and all those kinds of things. I'm disappointed. I think I do think sometimes when Carolina and Duke are not in the top two or three in the league that there's a national nar- narrative that, that means that it's, you know, if Pitt or Clemson or Virginia Tech or somebody like that is at the top of the league or in the top three that the league must be down. And, and uh, if that's the case and whatever those guys are, like let's match them up against them, right? Like I like North Carolina's in sixth right now. And let's see them play the sixth place team in the Big Ten and the Big 12. And the, I mean, if you want to talk about depth, right? So um, it's, it's a hard one. I get it. Uh, it's a really hard situation. And it's, yeah, it's a little bit frustrating because if they're looking for reasons to keep you out. They will. So David, is it that simple? Is it if Duke and North Carolina aren't at the top, everybody thinks the ACC is down? To some degree, yes, Mike. But I don't think that's how the selection committee looks at it. And they're the ones who matter. I don't believe for a minute that the selection committee 
is staying up late at night, no offense, to watch Joe Lenardi. I, I, I just don't. And I think to them it's just noise. And they rely on the metrics that they have and the data and their own eyes and their own uh, research because each member of the committee is charged with monitoring a primary conference and a secondary conference. And it's your job to, to know that league inside and out. And if, if you're monitoring the ACC, it's your job to know when Clemson's lineup was compromised by injury and how it impacted results, things such as that. Um, and if Virginia Tech had gotten into to the discussion, how what would the Hokies have been viewed because of Hunter Couture's injury? Uh, those are things that are talking points among committee members, not what nod heads like you and I and Lenardi and Jerry Palm. I mean, it's all fun and we all love to speculate, but I, I don't think the national narrative about the ACC or any conference, whether good or bad, seeps into that committee room. I truly don't. But now it's interesting because Brownell's point was in part that he feels sometimes the committee makes its decisions and then goes back to the data to, to, to sort of justify them. He pointed out a few years back when his team was in the 30s in the net uh, right. and got left out. Uh, now people are saying, well, they have to be left out because they're 62 in the net. Um, and, and so you don't worry about the fact that they're 21 and nine or fourth in the conference or, or any of those things. Uh I guess some of these coaches just feel like they're trying to hit moving goalposts a little bit. Uh, I, I, I think that's very fair. And Mike, it's also inevitable because the committee membership changes right. e each year. So different people bring different viewpoints and different priorities into the process. And it's not an open ballot. You, you vote at your laptop and Committee member A has no clue what committee member B is voting. And then the poor chairman has to go in front of the cameras. It's, it's much like Boo Corrigan <laughs> this past football season. You know, why did you guys do this? Well, he doesn't know. He doesn't know why committee member X voted his way. He doesn't even know how committee member X voted. He, the, the TV folks may be asking Boo Corrigan to defend a decision that he disagrees with. Yeah, that's that's the job, but it's certainly yeah, yes, an, an awkward position. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. And <clears throat> I can assure you this, Clemson's not going to get left out of the NCAA tournament because its net is in the 60s. That's, that's borderline irrelevant. Let's go to your alma mater, Mike. Rutgers made the, made the NCAA tournament last season. You know what Rutgers was on the net on Selection Sunday? 77. It, it comes down to other things. And if Clemson is left out of the NCAA tournament, all the Tigers have to look to is non-conference strength of schedule. It's in the 340s. It, it, it can't be that low when you're on the bubble because you're, you're absolutely giving the committee a reason to exclude you. And that's the thing in all of these debates, David. If they win one or two more games somewhere along the way, we're not having this debate. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So in the end, you could talk about, oh, well, what are the what are the standards? What are the criteria? We all know the standards and the criteria. It's only when we come down to the bubble teams and you're splitting the hairs between those different teams that, that we sort of have this debate of, OK, what matters more? Uh, so with that in mind, I think Virginia, Duke, Miami, uh, NC State are clearly in Pittsburgh, clearly in. Yes, those Where five you, are in. Is that it? Who's still in play? And who do you think, let me ask it this way, who do you think deserves to be in of the remaining teams? See, that, that's that's another that there's a difficult question. The only two others who have a ghost chance of an at-large bid are Carolina and Clemson. No one else is in this discussion. And it's hard to say if they deserve it because you don't know how it's going to play out around the country over the next week and a half. So if, if, if some other team that's close to Clemson goes in the tank while Clemson closes the regular season by beating Notre Dame at home and then winning a couple games in Greensboro, then would you say Clemson is deserving? Yes. Do I think Clemson is good enough to compete and advance in the NCAA tournament? 100% I do. Let me ask this then, because you were just at, at VCU you saw them play. They've been very good this year. They're now the conference regular season champions. But the sense is that's a one-bid league. Mm-hmm. If VCU doesn't get the job done uh, in the conference tournament, they're probably going to be left out. How would you compare VCU with Clemson? It's fascinating that you asked that because I asked myself that on the ride home <laughs> from the Siegel Center last night After because I listened, I listened to Brad Brownell's post-game presser on YouTube. Kids, don't do this at home. Uh, (laughs) While I was driving home, and I heard your question to to Brad, and I heard his response. And and so I thought, and because Mike Rhodes had given a similar response when he was asked last night about his team. And he actually used the phrase, they moved the goalposts on you. (laughs) And And he's right. VCU versus Clemson. I think Clemson is a little better because of its offense. I think they're both really good defensively, but I like Clemson better offensively, and I especially like P.J. Hall against VCU's bigs. In terms of their resume, I mean, and and if, if you want to go to the net, which is important, uh, Clemson's 62 this morning, VCU's 67, so they're a virtual tie, right? When, when it comes to the net ranking, they uh, both have two quad four losses. They they do now. VCU is twenty and two against quad three and four, whereas Clemson is fourteen and four. They have four what I would deem bad losses. VCU only has two of them. Uh, those could be factors to keep both of them out. I think that's important to to mention as we as we mm-hmm. banter this debate. Uh, but it, it, to me, it's, it's a fascinating, you know, they used to, I don't know if they still do it, but on ESPN, they used to put up the, the blind resumes, right? Yeah. Team A and Team B. Um, I've been looking at Clemson and VCU last night and this morning, and I'm like, man, those are fairly interchangeable uh, resumes. I don't know who I feel better about other than the fact that I think VCU has certainly a better chance to win its conference tournament and, and not worry about the debate. Yes, that that I would I would grant you, but Mike, let, let let's go to how many quad one and quad two wins they have. Yep. So VCU is one and one 
uh, only one win in quad one, whereas Clemson four and three, four quad one victories, um, tougher schedule. Although we talked about Clemson not having the toughest schedule, but tougher schedule edge goes there. No doubt to Clemson. Yeah. Overall, but not non-conference. Right. Clemson's non-conference is 335. But yeah, Clemson has seven wins over quad one and quad two. VCU has three. Yeah. So again, it's, as you brought this up, it's each different committee member. What's more important to them? Is it bad losses? Is it quality wins? Is it strength of schedule? Is it some amalgamation of, of all of that in their head that we don't know and they don't know probably how they come to it. Uh, but it is, it's what makes it so fun. It's what makes it uh, so enjoyable to cover, to write about, to talk about, but it is also what ratchets up the stress level <laughs> on these coaches because uh, they all desperately want to make that tournament. They want to get their players that chance. Uh, it is a special time of year, as we said at the opening um, and it's a lot of fun and getting there. Can, can be a little dicey, but but once you do, it's it's a great time. Oh, it absolutely is, and I'll I'll tell you what, I will I will sh- I will fly the flag here for the local team. I wish VCU well because I still hurt for those kids who didn't get to play mm-hmm. in the NCAA tournament in twenty one be- because of of COVID. They're out there in Indianapolis. They're hours away. From playing, what was it, Oregon? Do I do I have my memory right, correct yeah. in in the first round? And they they had to forfeit. They 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 couldn't play. They were the only team that couldn't that couldn't pass protocol uh, to play in the thirty two uh, first round games. Uh, so for, for Mike Rhodes and and that program, it would be really cool to see them on the floor in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it, qualifying is a nice accomplishment, but playing in the tournament is where the fun comes in, and uh, we we do we do wish that for them. I, I think it's okay to to have a little bias there and say we 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 do wish uh, to give them the chance to to get on the floor and play. It's going to be a lot of fun, David, for us to cover. We hope you had fun listening today. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods, and please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the TD. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer and yours truly. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And here we go, March. March.